Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome everybody to Fitness for Consumption. I am your host, Paul Juris, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Gregory Gordon. Gigi, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, and we are back again by popular demand. We've got another part two of uh, some of the content in our series. So today we've got part two of In the Moment, which was um, an episode we launched earlier this season, and we got a lot of positive feedback and something that... Uh, we worked long and hard on and felt was uh, a critical episode to have. Um, yeah, so that was that... a labor of love, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and much more <laughs> on your end. But yeah, really, well... you, you know, significantly because we, you know, the truth is to have nuanced conversation about exercise, you just can't overlook torque. It's just that's that's the main ingredient. You know, you, mm-hmm. you just you, you can't go around it. You've just got to go through it. So, you know, it, it was a lot of consternation to figure out how we can do it. Because, again, we're limited to old-time audio here. So we don't have the benefit of visual aids. But we did it. We got good feedback from it. So we're, we're moving forward, and we're taking everyone along with us. Sounds like a good plan. All right, so today in part two of our series, we're going to continue to examine torque and joint moments. And we've decided that we're going to do this as a continuing series. So just like Mm -hmm. if you were in an academic setting, you know, you don't take calculus one through 10 at once. You start with calculus one and calculus two, and then you keep going layer by layer. So we're going to follow that similar model, which is we're going to do this episode several times. And each time we do it, we're going to add another layer of nuance to it. So we're going to dive a little deeper into some of the aspects of the biomechanics. And then today we're going to look more closely at some of the forces, and then we're going to pose another riddle to our listeners. Mm, sounds like fun. All right. So before we move forward, I think it's always a good idea to recap, right? Yes. Okay. So first of all, let's start with the basic definition. So torque is, raise your hands, anybody? Okay. Me, Yep. I got this one. You want to answer that one? Sure. So torque is a force whose tendency is to cause rotation about an axis. Yes. Gold star for you. Okay. Good job. And so, again, last time we spoke about 
that a net torque arises from establishing an unbalanced state, meaning that if we go back, we were using the seesaw example. So That's one right. side has to be producing more force because what happens if both sides are producing equal force? There's yeah, no and so, right, you get, a, you get the same torque. And we talked about effort and resistance, right? So the right. resistance is what we're working against and the effort is that which we need to produce. And so to get a net torque, we need to produce an effort which is greater than the torque established by the resistance, and that's how we get things to move in our favor. Right, or vice versa. If, a, if, if we can't lift a weight, if we're doing a negative, if the weight's too heavy and the weight's winning, then the resistance side is winning. But either that's way, right. for motion to happen, just an important concept here, that there's got to be an unbalanced state. Right. Okay, so then we spoke about the combination of the distance of the applied force from that axis of rotation. So if you can remember, we spoke about an axis of rotation and it's the middle of that seesaw. So you can imagine that lever that you're sitting on, that's the beam of the seesaw. And then close your eyes and picture in your mind's eye that it's rotating around this thing in the center, which some people call a fulcrum, but mm -hmm. we're gonna refer to as the axis of rotation. And the shortest perpendicular distance to that axis of rotation from the line of force to that axis of rotation is what we call the moment arm. Right. And then the way we get the torque equation is that all we need to do is once we have the moment arm, then we just have to multiply that times the force. Right. So we multiply those two together. So force times moment arm, and then we get our torque. That's right. Now, traditionally, if we look at that measure in a research study, the unit of measure is referred to as a Newton meter. So that's right. a metric value. And we'll actually talk about that in this episode. We'll figure out how to convert imperial units, which we know as foot-pounds or pound-feet. Uh, we'll convert that into newton meters. And it sounds scary, but it's not. So that's how we're going to report on this as we get into this conversation. Uh, we'll be discussing the terms, the units, in newton meters. Right. And the reason we're doing it is if you understand the concept, knowing it in newton meters or imperial units is not going to matter in the gym. However, if you dive into any of the research on this, this is going to be the standard. So you might as well hear it from us first, get comfortable with it, and then you'll feel much more comfortable when you, if and when you try to read any of the papers on this. Precisely. All right. Well, so that's our little recap. And we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with the next segment. Okay, we are back. Um, we just did a recap on our previous episode, and now let's dive a little bit into the biomechanics. We've been talking about torque which begins with a force, and we really want to start with the notion that force is a vector quantity. Mm -hmm. So when we call something a vector, GG, what does that mean? So in basic physics, a vector quantity has a magnitude and a direction, and it's critical to what we're talking about because not only do we need to know the magnitude, the direction is really important too. So... Force is a vector, which means it has magnitude and direction. And the direction thing is interesting because when you have multiple forces, each having its own direction, they can be combined into a single resultant. 
So whenever we're looking at limb segments moving, for example, if it's a compound movement, we may have different forces being produced by different segments, and we're going to combine them into a resultant force. And conversely, mm -hmm. a single force can be resolved into two components. So mm -hmm. it's a little bit different because a resultant can be combined from multiple forces, but a single force resultant can be resolved into two components. And we're going to be doing a little bit of both of those in this discussion. So let's start with how forces resolve, which is related to a concept called angle of incidence. Now, in our previous episode, we talked about the angle of force application. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting a little bit more specific and we're calling it an angle of incidence, mm -hmm. right? Let's start with something pretty basic, believe it or not. Let's say we apply a force to a plane or we can even say a lever, not an airplane, but a plane of motion. So we <laughs> right. take a force and we apply it at a perpendicular angle to that plane, when the force is perpendicular to the plane, we refer to it as normal to that plane. So anytime a force is applied at a perpendicular angle to a plane, it's considered normal. Right. And that may sound a little bit confusing, but a really simple example is just when you're standing on a floor and the floor is horizontal and I'm pushing down vertically, there's a normal force relative to the plane of the floor. That's right. Exactly. That's a great example. I'm standing on the floor. The force that I'm creating is perpendicular to the floor. That's considered normal. Just one quick thing. So I remember when I first heard about normal, and I think a lot of our listeners might be also thinking, oh, normal must mean something in line to the more colloquial um, understanding of it, where it's... Usual, in, typical? You, yeah, usual, typical. Yeah, this right. is not what we mean by normal. So if something is not normal, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that force, that that force is dangerous to a joint. Just think perpendicular. It is directionally related. So when we're talking about a normal force, it's a direction. It's not usual, typical type of normal. So as a force approaches a plane, and, and it's normal to the plane... It doesn't resolve. It stays intact. And so if you're applying that force to a plane that has the potential to revolve around an axis, so if that plane happens to be a lever and the force is normal to that lever, then 100% of the applied force is going to cause rotation of that lever around the axis. Mm -hmm. That's the optimal way to apply force to the lever or plane a normal force. Right. So ideally, if our goal was to rotate this lever, we would want all of our force to be normal because that means we're not spending any energy in any other direction. That's right. Exactly. Okay. So this brings us to our next point, angle of incidence. Mm -hmm. So the angle of incidence is the difference between normal and the angle of the applied force. We compare the force we apply to what would be normal and we measure the difference in degrees. And that's the angle of incidence. Right. So, by definition, if an angle of incidence is zero, that means the applied force is normal. Mm -hmm. So, again, perpendicular to the plane. Now, if the angle of incidence is increasing, 
it means that the force that's applied is moving farther from the perpendicular and closer and closer to being parallel to the plane. Mm -hmm. So what's happening now is as the angle of incidence increases from zero, as it's greater than zero, now the force resolves into two components. Right. Right. One of those components is perpendicular to the plane, and the other one is parallel to the plane. Yeah. So if, just imagine for our listeners, so let's just look at it from one example to begin with. So imagine it's one degree off normal. So it could either Mm -hmm. be 91 degrees or it can be 89 degrees. Right. Either one of those, by definition, the force is no longer normal. But if you can imagine the way the arrow would look in terms of its, whether it's pointing more towards parallel or perpendicular, if it's just one degree off, it's still going to look mainly perpendicular. Yeah, so what happens, and when we talk about resolving... If you imagine an arrow representing the force and it's normal, what you're going to see is an arrow that is making contact with the plane at a perpendicular angle. Once you get any degree off of normal, now it resolves into two components. So you have to imagine an arrow that is perpendicular to the plane and an arrow that is parallel to the plane. Now, in your example... The one degree off, that parallel component, that one degree, the length of that arrow represents that difference there. Right. It's tiny. Tiny. Whereas the rest of the force, 89 degrees, Mm -hmm. that you're representing a big perpendicular component, and that's a big arrow. Mm -hmm. So now, in your mind's eye, think about as the angle of incidence increases, the parallel component is increasing. And the perpendicular component is decreasing. So the length of the perpendicular component is decreasing. And the length of the parallel component is increasing. And what it's telling you is as the angle of incidence gets closer to parallel, farther from normal, the amount of force causing rotation, that perpendicular component, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the parallel component is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. Now, that puts us at a disadvantage. So that when you apply a force at an extreme angle to the plane, at a high angle of incidence, what do you have to do in order to produce movement? You're going to have to really increase your effort because now instead of, again, we're talking about torque and rotation here, if I'm trying to rotate a lever but half of my effort is going towards translating or just linearly moving this lever. Mm -hmm. Um, In a sense, you could think about it is that you're wasting half of your effort. So if I'm wasting half of my effort, just the way it's getting um, applied to the lever, then I'm going to have to make up for it with a lot more effort. With twice as much effort, right? And so that's the idea of angle of incidence, forces resolving, and what we need to do in order to make things work. So now let's take a quick look at the opposite. When we have multiple forces, they combine in order to create a resultant force, which is a single force vector that represents the combination of those multiple forces. And it's very evident in compound or multi-joint movements. So let's start with a barbell bench press as an example, because this is classic. We think... 
basically, if we're moving the bar up, that the force we're creating must be up. It must be pointed vertically. But mm -hmm. that's not necessarily true. So we need to understand how this actually works. Mm -hmm. Okay. For all intents and purposes, let's look at this multi-segment or multi-joint system as having two segments. Let's look at the arm from the shoulder to the elbow and the forearm from the elbow to the wrist. We're going to leave the hand out of it for a minute. Okay. okay. So we have two segments. Now, the joint moments that we create around the shoulder and the elbow create forces at the segments. So we create a moment at the shoulder. It causes rotation of the arm. There's a force that's manifested on the arm. And then when the elbow moves, it creates a force that's manifested on the forearm. Now, those forces we visualize at a tangent to those limb segments. So what do we mean by that, Gigi? So again, when we're talking about rotational motion around an arc, a tangent is just a 90 degree angle to the radius, to the lever. Right. So the force, when we're measuring it or visualizing it, is coming off the lever at a 90 degree angle. So this is what makes it interesting because let's just focus on the arm for a second. If we can visualize an arm moving through a range of motion in a bench press, mm -hmm. the force is tangent to that arm, which means it's at a 90 degree angle to the arm. And if you can visualize that as the arm rotates around the shoulder during the bench press, that that tangent, that force vector, starts out pointing somewhat upwards and slightly to the outside, right? And then as the arm rotates, it starts to point a little bit toward the inside, medially. So as the arm rotates around, that force vector starts vertically and laterally, and then as it continues to rotate, it's vertical and medial. So that rotation is changing the direction of that force mm -hmm. application. The mm -hmm. forearm works a little differently. The elbow is causing rotation basically into arm extension. So if you can visualize what's happening in the bench press, the elbow is pushing outward. Mm -hmm. And so its force vector is pointed laterally. It's mm -hmm. not pointed up. It's pointed laterally. Now, why doesn't your hand move when you're doing a bench press, given the fact that your elbow is pushing laterally? So when you're pushing into the bar, assuming there's enough mass on it and it's pushing back into you, it's sort of holding your hands in place. Um, so even when you're trying to straighten your elbows and the bar, if, if you've ever used a barbell, you know that like where you put your hands is, is knurled. It's, it's mm -hmm. the, the surface is raised. And for what purpose? And that purpose is to create a little bit more friction so that right. as I am pushing out on it, that little bit of friction is actually pushing back on me a little bit too. So you can just imagine if I had a bar that was completely smooth and I greased it, if I had my hands on there, yeah, they actually might slide all the way until I got to the end of the bar. That's the right. The reason they, they don't is the, the, the mass of the bar and the, the, the load and the, the friction that's on the bar. Absolutely right. So what's happening here then is the arm is generating a force that's going up immediately, but the forearm is generating a force that's going laterally. So you have two forces going in different directions. And right. when they combine, we get a resultant. And that resultant is not straight up. 
it's angled slightly to the outside. Not a lot because the force created from the elbow rotation is not as much as the force created from the shoulder rotation, but it's enough that it actually directs that force vector at a 14 degree angle off of the vertical. Now, how do I know it's 14? I could be making that up. <laughs> right. Well, I promise I'm not. There was a study that was done by Duffy and Chalice, which was 2011. These were Penn State biomechanics people, and they actually did a study where they put load cells on a bar and measured the forces that were being generated during a bench press. And what they discovered was that when you do a bench press, the force vector, the resultant force vector is 14 degrees from the vertical, laterally. All right. So we'll put that in the show notes so that people can pull that up if they like. So that's how forces combine into resultants. And what we now know is that with a bench press, the force generated by the limb system is not vertical, but it's slightly lateral to vertical by about 14 degrees. And right. And so, and what does that really mean? <laughs> well, that's the question at hand. And now that we've Given a little color commentary to this discussion on torque, we're going to pose the question for our episode right after a short break. All right. Hello, all. Gigi here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. Okay, we're back. Um, we've covered our biomechanics and now we're gonna ask today's riddle. You're doing a barbell bench press and you're doing a dumbbell bench press. Why can't you do the dumbbell press with half the weight of your bench press. So in other words, if you can bench press 100 pounds, why can't you do the bench press with two 50-pound dumbbells? Now, we're assuming you're working at a relatively high percentage of your max here. Because if you're benching mm -hmm. something really light, well, then the answer is, of course, you can do half the weight with dumbbells. But yeah, if, you're, if you're using a significant load on the bench press, and we all know, we've all tried this. You can't just divide that in half and do the same thing with dumbbells, right? It's, a, it's nearly impossible. Some people might be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Some unusual. angry people may comment on our Instagram that they can do it, so <laughs> shut up. But I'm suggesting that most normal people can't do it. And so the question is, why not? Well, that's a really good question. So... We just learned something about the bench press. So I know that there's something about the resultant that the bench press is creating that might have some significance. It might. Now, some people could say, and I've heard this very often when I pose this question to people, well, you know, you have to stabilize more with the dumbbells. And that's why it's more difficult uh -huh. because you have to involve your stabilizing muscles more and in your core you know haven't you heard that before of course yeah it's possible that there's some stabilizing element that's required 
Mm-hmm. Um, although I think if it were true that a lot of stability was required in a dumbbell press, you would see the dumbbell sort of moving in a very variable way. If you were to watch someone closely doing a dumbbell press and people were forced to stabilize a lot, which means they're constantly contracting different muscles around the shoulder to stabilize it, the dumbbell would have a very erratic path to the top of the movement. Mm-hmm. But the we, fact is it moves in a very smooth way, doesn't it? Right. And we also know that doing a heavy bench press does not mean in any way that your core muscles are not working. So, Well, this is true too, especially when you're laying on your back. And yep. if you listen to our first The Fine Print episode, uh, we talk about that very subject. Yeah. So, all right. We're going to get into the actual reason why. So let's start with the barbell bench press. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just explained this whole concept of this force vector, this 14 degrees off the vertical. So we understand how that works. Now, the first thing we need to do, as we said at the top of the segment, is we need to convert the units of measure into metric units. So if we're using a 100-pound barbell, first thing we need to do is convert that into metric units. And the metric version of weight in pounds is newtons. Mm-hmm. All right. So what we want to do is we want to convert this into newtons. All right. And people sometimes hear that and they start cringing and panicking. Right. right. <laughs> you know, right? Wait, I don't want to do that. Feeling. I'm, I'm yep. used to pounds. Like, what's a newton? Yep. It's not something that you dip in scotch, you know, with the fig inside. That's, that's a different kind of Newton. Um, it's not that hard. So if you understand the notion of force is equal to mass times acceleration, you can do this. So the first thing we need to do is change weight into mass because the formula is mass times acceleration, not weight times acceleration. Mm-hmm. So how do you convert pounds into a mass? So we've got to take the pounds and turn them into kilograms. And so the way you do that is that you divide the weight by 2.2, and that'll give you kilograms. Exactly, because kilograms basically are a mass. Pounds are weight. Kilograms Mm -hmm. are mass. So we just convert pounds into kilograms. So you divide, in this case, 100 pounds by 2.2, and what you end up with is 45.45 kilograms. So that's how many kilograms are on a 100-pound bar. Now what we need to do, remember the formula is force equals mass times acceleration. Mm-hmm. All you need to do now is multiply the mass in kilograms by acceleration, which is 9.81 meters per second squared, mm-hmm. right? So 9.81 is G's, gravity. So we take the 45.45 and we multiply it by 9.81 And what we end up with is just about 446 newtons, okay? Now, for me, just personally, if I could bench press 100 pounds, I'd rather tell people I could bench press 446 (laughs) newtons. Absolutely, yep. Yeah, it sounds a lot more impressive. Okay. Absolutely. So just to finish up this conversation here, we're going to take this barbell, we're holding it with two hands, and let's say our hands are equidistant from the middle, So we could basically say that the 446 newtons is divided equally into both sides. So each side is dealing with 223 newtons. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's what we're setting up here, 223 newtons. Right. Okay. One thing we need to remember here, though, because we talked about unbalanced forces before, and we talked about it in the last episode of In the Moment. 
if we want to accelerate this bar upwards, then we need to produce in excess of the equivalent of 223 newtons, mm-hmm. right? So we need to produce more than that. Right. So we could analyze this from that perspective, but we don't know how much more. So mm-hmm. just for now, let's just stick to the 223 newtons. Mm-hmm. We know that that would basically create a balance force, but let's just, so for the sake of simplicity, not go there and just say, okay, let's start with 223 newtons. Yeah, I think people can understand. To move it, you just need something more than 223. That's right. Okay. We're going to have this 223 newtons that we need to produce. And what is that force vector looking like as we're producing it? We just talked about it a minute ago with the bench press. So what does that force vector look like? So what we're dealing with is the reactive force of the bar pushing back on us. So we have to deal with, we're pushing straight up into the bar. And as we just learned, we're also pushing out on the bar a little bit. So when you combine those two, that force actually is angled and it comes somewhere between my shoulder and elbow joint. So it's not straight through my elbow joint and it's not completely through my shoulder joint. It's somewhere between those two. That's right. So... We are producing a force that's vertical and lateral, but it's the reactive component that is actually loading our joints. So that comes downward and medial. So it's directed somewhat towards the shoulder. It's not coming straight down. It's not horizontal. It's coming down at a 14 degree angle from the hand. And so it's somewhere between the shoulder and the elbow. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's what we have to visualize here. So relatively speaking, the question is, how close is that vector to the shoulder or to the elbow? And, you know, what does that equate to? Mm -hmm. So what does it mean in terms of the loading on those joints or the joint moments that are required in order to manage that? So we're going to need to do some math here, Mm -hmm. sort of, because Mm -hmm. we're not going to walk everybody through the actual math, um, because that may take some time, but we're going to give you the summary of the math, in, mm-hmm. in a sense. So we're not doing it, but we're going to refer to it. How's that? Okay. Fair, fair enough, I think, on behalf of all our listening audience. And <laughs> not to give them too much of a headache. <laughs> so let's assume the average length of the arm from shoulder to elbow is about 0.26 meters, 26 centimeters. Okay. And the length of the forearm from the elbow to the wrist is 0.28 meters or 28 centimeters. Okay. All right. There's a 14-degree angle of incidence, mm-hmm. and that's directed down toward the shoulder. Mm-hmm. We're going to need to do some geometry and trigonometry in order to figure all these things out. But I've done it already <laughs> and mapped it out on paper. Yep, sounds good. Okay, so once we perform the geometry and the trig, what that equates to is roughly a 0.18 meter moment arm at the shoulder Mm -hmm. and a 0.07 meter moment arm at the elbow. Now we take those and multiply it by the force. Right. And by the way, our listeners that are not going to take out the ruler, they can still do, if you can draw a diagram of a stick figure laying on their back with a a barbell over them, and you, you, even if you're not exactly 14 degrees, if you can imagine that line is coming somewhere between the elbow and shoulder, and then you just find those those shortest perpendicular distances, um, which are the moment arms to the elbow and shoulder, you can see exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, you can visualize it. I mean, mm-hmm. 
actually having the real calculations and real distances, you know, if you're doing the geometry and trig, you can get there. If you're mm -hmm. just drawing lines, you can get a sense of what it's like. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, just for the purpose of visualization here, what we're talking about is when the arm is parallel to the ground mm -hmm. and when the forearm is perpendicular to the arm. Right, yeah. So that's the position at which right. we're looking at this right now. Yeah. Okay. So what we're doing is we're taking each moment arm and multiplying it by the force in newtons. So 223 newtons multiplied by each moment arm to get the joint moment for the shoulder and the elbow. Okay, so we take 223 and we multiply that by 0 0.18, mm -hmm. which is the moment arm for the shoulder, and that gives us just about 40 newton meters of torque at the shoulder joint. Mm -hmm. 40 newton meters. Mm -hmm. We take the 0 0.07 for the elbow, the moment arm at the elbow, and we multiply that by 223 newtons, and we end up with 16 newton meters of torque at the elbow. Hmm. Okay, 40 okay. newton meters at the shoulder, 16 newton meters at the elbow, okay? So take-home message is that both joints are producing torque. Both joints are producing torque, and more so at the shoulder, 40 mm -hmm. newton meters, 16 newton meters at the elbow. Remember those numbers. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Now, let's look at the dumbbell press. Right. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to say that the dumbbell press is half the load of the barbell. That was the premise of the question. Right. But each dumbbell then should be 223 newtons because mm -hmm. that's what we're looking at, right? That's right. half the weight of the total 446 newtons of the barbell. Mm -hmm. Word of caution as we start, this exercise does not involve the same force vector, even mm -hmm. though both the arm and the forearm are involved. Why not? Well, let's use an example here. So imagine you're under a barbell and you're pushing into the barbell, that a little of your force is also you're pushing out a little bit. And what we know now, it's about 14 degrees worth. So if you lay on your back and you do a dumbbell press, dumbbell chest press, mm -hmm. and you push out 14 degrees worth, what's going to happen to that dumbbell? Uh, it's going to go sideways. Right. And then what's going to happen to you? You're, those dumbbells, unless you're strong enough to catch them, they're going to go down towards the ground, and you're not going to be able to do that chest press. Well, actually, that chest press, I think, would turn it into a, a fly. chest fly. Yeah. Right. And, right. And doing a fly with 50-pound uh, yeah. dumbbells is going to be quite a challenge for even right. the most strong of us, right? Right. So, yeah, Especially that's if not you're not expecting work. it. Yep. No. So here's the reality. When you're doing a dumbbell bench press, the forearm, the rotation around the elbow is not pushing those weights laterally because you can't. They right. have to go up. Now, some people might say, well, the weight's moving medially, therefore you're creating a medial force. And the answer to that is no, not really. Don't confuse direction of travel of the weight mm -hmm. with direction of force application. So in this case, what you're doing is you're creating a force vector, which is pushing straight up. Now, the force vector is going up. The fact that the dumbbell is moving medially occurs only because the shoulder is rotating in that direction. Mm -hmm. So it's pulling the weight in that direction. But the force application is vertical in this case. Right. And PJ, just a quick side note here. So we've gone over 
um, some of these perspectives uh, in uh, our earlier episodes, the F word in particular. So there's mm-hmm. some there's some exercise specialists and some uh, people in the field that feel that doing a chest press on a machine not only is it not functional um, because of the restraint of the machine, um, it could actually impair your ability to produce force from your chest, like any sort of pressing force. And mm-hmm. again, their whole concern is that. The machine is res- because the machine moves in one plane. It's restricting. It's not free. There's no free motion. That it's really restricting your motion, and that actually is going to damage your brain's ability to process, uh, you know, spatial information. And so, what we're seeing here, what's more free is a, if I can push on a machine, I can push out a little bit. I can push in a little bit, and if I have enough force going to move the bar forward it's still going to move forward if i push out just a little bit on a heavy dumbbell it's going down towards the ground yeah it's interesting because i never associated working on a machine with brain damage (laughs) um i think maybe people get brain damage from other reasons from working in a gym but not from pushing (laughs) against the machine um yeah so it's an interesting point that you raise it's sort of like the machine actually allows you to push in all kinds of directions right and if you're thinking about working stabilizing muscles around a joint you don't have to be moving in that direction for those muscles to be turning on and engaged so just by virtue of the fact that you're pushing in different directions as the implement that you're pushing against is going in a fixed path Mm-hmm. You can actually engage all the muscles you want in that. So, yeah, in very you know, as a ways. side note, I think that's an interesting observation. Uh, there's less freedom of movement with the dumbbell because if you were to move in, in different ways like that, then you would end up putting yourself in positions that could be very challenging, if not dangerous. Mm-hmm. So what it really does is it requires you to move in a very specific path, right. which is what happens in a dumbbell. You don't see much variability in dumbbell pressing. Right. Nevertheless, we've got this situation now. And mm-hmm. if we go back to the arm being parallel to the ground, the forearm being perpendicular, we are creating a vertical force vector. So now that force vector is normal to the arm when it's parallel to the ground. Right. With the barbell bench press, it was at a 14 degree angle of incidence, but right. now it's normal. And what that means is that it's coming straight down, the force vector is coming straight down through the elbow. And starting with that, we don't even need to do any math because the moment arm at the elbow is zero. Mm-hmm. There is no moment arm at the elbow. And when there's no moment arm, there's no torque. There's no torque. The other part of that is the moment arm for the shoulder is now the full length of the arm mm-hmm. because it's normal to that limb segment, 90 Mm -hmm. degrees to that limb segment, which means the full 0.26 meters of the arm is the moment arm. So what we need to do is multiply 0.26 times 223 newtons, and that results in a joint moment at the shoulder of 58 newton meters. Mm -hmm. Now, what did we say it was with the barbell? So in the barbell, it was about 40 newtons at the shoulder and about 16 at the elbow. Yeah, so 40 newton meters at the shoulder for the barbell bench press, 58 newton meters at the shoulder for the dumbbell bench press. Same amount of weight, but the biomechanics are different. And in fact, a dumbbell with Mm -hmm. half the weight of a barbell 
produces a load on the shoulder, a shoulder moment that is one and a half times, nearly one and a half times greater than the barbell bench press. Hmm. That is significantly more difficult mm-hmm. than doing a barbell bench press. And not to mention we lost the assistance of the elbow joint. That's right. So the elbow is doing nothing but trying to prevent the dumbbell from going off in a weird direction, which we don't want it to go. Mm-hmm. So that's why you can't do a dumbbell bench press with half the weight of your barbell bench press. Now, I call that better living through biomechanics. <laughs> and to bring it back to our, one of our original episodes again, which was the, the fitness ecosystem. So look, we're not saying that dumbbell bench presses are bad or a barbell bench press is better. It's all good. Do all of it. Use that's machines. Right. We just spoke about how machines, surprisingly, in a certain context, can offer you the most freedom. Um, so put that in your pipe and smoke it to those <laughs> so who would uh, uh, see Those who would choose to argue with us. So, yeah. you know, it's great when people are arguing to just throw some numbers at it and see what actually emerges. And, you know, look, you're, you're absolutely right. It's not to suggest that one exercise is better than the other. What we're really getting at here is understanding how exercise works so that we are empowered to make better decisions. Absolutely. You know, there may be times when we want to do a dumbbell. There may be times when we want to do a barbell, but we need to understand what the differences are. And if we know that, if we understand the biomechanics of it, then we can also select loads that are appropriate for an individual given their ability to do something with a bar versus a dumbbell. We understand what those ratios are like so that we can select the right loading for the optimal experience when doing something. Choose the right exercise for the right reason and set it up the best way possible so that you or your clients can get the best result from it. Exactly. Well, PJ, this was a great chapter two of our Torque ongoing episodes. We added some more layers to the story. And uh, I hope our listeners find, found this enjoyable. And there will be a part three. And there will be a part three. And I'm looking forward to that. And once again, to our listeners, we thank you for hanging out with us. And we look forward to the next one. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and it gave you lots to think about. So while you're thinking, why don't you consider becoming a member of our round table? What's the round table? Well... It's a place where we meet to discuss, opine, question, comment, and just engage in respectful conversation about all things related to human movement science. Everyone that joins has an equal seat at the table. So become a member by finding us on Instagram and sending us a message or visiting us at our Facebook group, the Fitness for Consumption Roundtable, and just click to join. We hope to see you there.